We're going to take our Bibles this morning to the book of Genesis. We're going to begin in Genesis. Now Jesus preached from the Hebrew Scriptures throughout His earthly ministry. The Hebrew Scriptures, commonly known today in Christian circles as the Old Testament. In Jewish or Messianic believers' circles, the Hebrew Scriptures are known as the Tanakh. T-A-N-A-K-H, Tanakh. Now the term Tanakh is an anagram made from the first letters of the three divisions of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tanakh, T, Torah, or the law. The N, T-A-N, the N is Navaim, the prophets, the prophets. And the K-H is the Ketuvim, Ketuvim, or the writings. So when you think of the law, of course you think immediately of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Scripture. When we think of the prophets, of course we are familiar with uh, the twelve minor prophets and then Isaiah and Jeremiah. And then we have the writings, which would be uh, like Psalms and Proverbs and Daniel and some of the other uh, Old Testament uh, books. So we have a threefold division of those books known as the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament. Now, that threefold division, is it man-made? Well, in a sense, yes, but it was under God's supervision. Uh, it was God who directed Ezra the scribe to compile the Scriptures. And you'll recall that this occurred after the people were in exile. The Israelites had been sent into uh, exile under Assyria and later Babylon. And after the time had been accomplished, uh, they were delivered from their oppressors. They were allowed to go back to the land, beginning with Cyrus and later Artaxerxes. And when they came back to the land, nobody knew how to read the scriptures. Because the scriptures were written in Hebrew, and yet, and some portions Aramaic, but the Jewish people had forgotten how to speak Hebrew. Only a select few, such as Ezra and some of the Levitical uh, tribe members, still knew how to speak Hebrew. And so it was their responsibility to begin to read the scriptures in the Hebrew tongue, translate it into the tongue that they spoke, the Babylonian tongue, and then begin to explain it to them. And we see this in Ezra chapter 6 and 7. And then as they began to teach, what did they do? They organized the scriptures into three particular divisions. And those three divisions are significant because at the end of each of those divisions, God specifically said a statement about not adding to or taking away from the words of this book. And so we have the first five books, then we have the section known as the writings, and then finally the section known as the prophets. Sometimes that's uh, just called the Law and the Prophets. Uh, we'll see that in Matthew and Luke and Acts and Romans. Uh, sometimes the writings are referred to as the Psalms. Now, not that all of the writings are Psalms, but Psalms is the largest portion of the writings, and so sometimes they're simply called the Psalms. Now, following his resurrection, Jesus showed himself to two disciples and revealed that he was indeed who? the Messiah, the Savior of the world. In Luke 24, 27, it says, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, so we have the twofold division there, Moses and the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in what? All the scriptures. Jesus there acknowledges that the law and the prophets are what? The scriptures. And those scriptures speak of who? They speak of him. Later that same day, Jesus appears to the apostles, again explaining that he was the Messiah. Listen to the words of Christ in Luke 24, 46. He said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things that are written about me, ready? In the law of Moses and the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, there's a couple takeaways there. First of all, he acknowledges what? 
the threefold division. The law, the prophets, the writings, or the Psalms. Okay? That's the first thing. Second thing we have to take note of here is that everything about Jesus that we need to know can be found where? In the Hebrew Scriptures. In the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. Now that's not to say there aren't things about Jesus in the Gospels. Obviously the Gospel is the real life account of what He did. But understand that anything in the Gospels about Jesus is previously revealed where? In the Old Testament. Understand that for the first 20 years of the church, church begins A.D. 29, the first New Testament book isn't written until A.D. 49, and that's the gospel, or the gospel, the epistle of James and the epistle to the Galatians. They're written in A.D. 49, 20 years. So what did the early church do for 20 years? How they possibly preach a Christmas series without the Gospels? They preached from where? The Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. When Peter stood up on the day of Pentecost and began to preach the first Sunday sermon, okay, where did he preach it from? The Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. In fact, it's interesting if you go through Acts chapter 2 and you pull out all the scriptures that he refers to, guess what? You will see that same threefold division. There's references from the law, there's references from the prophets, there's references from the writings. Everything about the Messiah, his birth, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his future reign, are revealed by God in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. There are more than 456 verses containing prophecies about the Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures. 456 verses are direct prophetic messages about Jesus. Some verses contain more than one prophecy. Okay? In fact, Genesis 3.15, there's four different prophecies just in one verse about the Messiah. Now, during His first advent, Jesus fulfilled three Hundred of those prophecies. 300 prophecies. Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled by Jesus in His first advent. Now, there's still others that He'll fulfill in His second advent. But 300. That's strong confirmation, isn't it? That Jesus is indeed who He claims to be. Listen, if He had, if he had done one or two of them, that's coincidence. Okay, Even if He did ten of them, 300? Okay. That's incredible that one man would fulfill 300 prophecies about the Messiah in his first advent. And time will not allow us to cover all 300 prophecies. I'm not even going to attempt to undertake that this morning. But I think it would behoove us to consider some messianic prophecies about what is commonly known as Christmas the celebration of Christ's birth. And as we contemplate Christmas in the Hebrew Scriptures, we're going to follow that threefold division that Jesus followed. The law, the writings, and the prophets. And so we're going to look at Christmas in the law. We'll later consider then Christmas in the writings, and then finally Christmas in the prophets. So when we speak of Christmas in the law, we're looking at the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And there's much that we could pull from that. Uh, we could just focus on the book of Exodus and look at the life of Moses. The life of Mo Moses is a type of Christ, okay? In the sense that we can look at Moses and there's key things in his life that the Bible tells us point to, direct us to the Messiah. Maybe that's, maybe that's something we'll do in the future. Uh, Christmas with Moses, okay? And uh, look at how Moses points to Christ. There's just so many amazing things, uh, the, the parallel between these two men. But that's not, not what we're going to do today. Our focus is going to be upon four messianic prophecies. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the scepter of Judah, and the star of Jacob. So Christmas in the law. Let's begin with Genesis 3, verse 15, because Christmas begins in Genesis 3, 15. You know, in fact, it's been said that every major doctrine of the Bible can be found in the book of Genesis. Think about that. Every major doctrine of the Bible 
can be found in the book of Genesis. And that, that is true. Okay? Uh, whether it's theology, Christology, uh, pneumatology, uh, anthropology, homardiology, uh, you know, uh, homardiology, and on and on we can go. Guess what? It all starts here. So Christmas in the law begins in Genesis 3.15 with the prophecy of the seed of the woman. It's, the Bible says, I will put enmity, now this is Yahweh speaking, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now let's set the, the backdrop here. Lucifer is on the scene. This scene occurs shortly after creation. Well, how long after creation? The Bible doesn't tell us. I do not believe that it is years and years and years. Okay? First of all, there's no children born yet. Okay? And I don't believe that God had intentions of Adam and Eve living for decades without children. Okay? Uh, remember, what did he tell them when he married them? Leave, weave, and cleave. And following cleave, he said, multiply. Okay? So his intention was that for them to have relations and produce children. So... They're having relations. Well, how do you know that? They're married. Okay? Leave mom and dad and know your wife. That's what the word know there means. Okay? So they're having a relationship. But so again, months have not passed here. This is days or weeks after the creation event. Lucifer, in that period, Rebels against God. You say, well, pastor, how come, you, how come Satan didn't rebel before creation? Well, Satan's an angel. He wasn't created until the end of day two. Okay? So he obviously couldn't rebel before creation. Number one. Number two. How do you know he didn't rebel sometime during creation? Because at the end of every creation day, what did God say? And it was good. Okay? Had Satan rebelled prior to creation, God would never have said it was good. Okay? Now, Lucifer rebels after creation, after the seventh day when God rested. He rebels against God and he gets the boot, kicked out of heaven, the third heaven where God dwells. Satan, his new name that he takes on, meaning the adversary, appears in the Garden of Eden. And what is his plan? What is his intention there? His intention is this. He wants to destroy what God created as good. He wants to replace God as the object of humanity's worship. And he wants to seize control of the created realm. And he used three weapons to accomplish that. You see, in order for him to destroy what God created as good, in order for him to replace God, or to replace God as the object of man's worship, and to seize control of the created realm, he had to get Adam and Eve to sin. And so first, he disputed God's word. Indeed, has God said, Genesis 3.1. Then he denied God's word, Genesis 3.4. You shall not surely die. And then he denied God's goodness and veracity, his character, in Genesis 3.5 when he says, God knows in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when he caused Adam and Eve to sin, he accomplished his evil plan. Adam and Eve succumbed. They sinned. And immediately their eyes were opened. And they became aware of good and evil. They knew they were naked and as a result experienced shame for the first time. And they hid from God's presence. In response, God appears in the garden dispensing justice. In wrath, he cursed Satan and humanity, but he also demonstrated mercy to humanity. Indeed, divine justice, listen carefully, I want you to have this definition. Divine justice is a balance of wrath and mercy. You cannot have justice if it's all of wrath. And you cannot have justice if it's all mercy. Divine wrath, biblical wrath, Perfect uh, uh, justice, perfect justice is a balance between wrath and mercy. God's mercy is displayed right here in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. Now the first act of divine justice was a curse. 
wrath. It's placing enmity between Satan and the woman. The word enmity here refers to hostility or animosity. And this animosity results from God's plan for the woman in the role of redemption. And so the animosity extended to the seed of Satan and to the seed of the woman. And I'd like to focus for a moment on that uh, phrase, the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman is what we call, theologically, the proto-evangelium. The proto-evangelium. Now, that is a Latin term meaning the first gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ begins not in John 3.16, but in Genesis 3.15. Because here in seed form is the promise of redemption in the Messiah. A son who is going to be born through this woman. This is our first, the very first messianic prophecy of scripture. So as I said a moment ago that every major doctrine is found in the book of Genesis. The doctrine of Christology, which if you're studying the doctrine of Christology, one of the things you begin with is what? Well, the deity of Christ. The second thing you begin with then is the humanity of Christ. And here is the beginnings of his humanity. The seed of the woman. Her seed. That word seed, zerah, Z-E-R-A with a little apostrophe at the end is a singular masculine noun meaning offspring or descendant. Now, while seed or offspring can refer to a group, the promise of seed was not a guarantee of descendants here, but of a specific descendant. According to Strong's Concordance, the term seed, quote, designates the whole line of descendants as a unit, but it also is deliberately flexible enough to denote one person who epitomizes the whole group, i.e. the man of promise and ultimately Christ. It can also refer to people in the line of natural or spiritual descendants. Because Strong's goes on to say, precisely so in Genesis 3.15, one such seed is the line of the woman, as contrasted with the opposing seed, which is the line of Satan's followers. Now, biologically, the seed, Zerah, always traces male lineage. Hence, in Scripture, genealogies are what? Paternal. You know, this guy begat this guy, this guy begat this guy, so on and so forth. Uh, typically genealogies are not maternal. The fact that seed is associated with the woman in Genesis 3.15 indicates something unique in the conception process. Now here's a little doctrine of anthropology. Okay, Men have seed and take that seed and impregnate women who then conceive a child. Nine months later, child comes forth. Now that's simplified, yes. But the idea that it's her seed, the seed of the woman, means that she is going to conceive a child without copulating with a male partner. It didn't say the seed of Adam. It doesn't say the seed that Adam gave to eat. It says her seed. This is miraculous, folks. The seed of the woman here means the Messiah is going to be born of a woman, a virgin woman, without a human father. Right there in Genesis 3.15. Isaiah 7.14 says, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Listen, Isaiah 7.14 is a prophecy of the virgin birth, but it's not the first prophecy of the virgin birth. The virgin birth prophecy goes all the way back to the beginning. Now, when a term like seed is used twice in the same verse. It, impl- it has to be then translated similarly. If I'm going to translate seed of the woman this way, I have to then translate seed of the serpent or seed of Satan in a similar way. If the seed of the woman implies a supernatural conception, then the seed of Satan or the seed of the serpent also implies a supernatural conception. So if the seed of the woman refers to the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus Christ, then who is possibly the seed of Satan referring to, but none other than the Antichrist? 
The Antichrist will have a human origin from a mother, from a human woman. But his father will be Satan. So we not only have a prophecy of the Messiah, we've got a prophecy of the origin of the Antichrist as well. Now the second act of divine justice is an announcement that the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of Satan. The word bruise here means to crush, to compress with violence. Now certainly if you have a snake and you crush the head of a snake, that's a fatal blow. And so Jesus the Messiah is going to deliver a fatal blow to Satan. And it's twofold. First, that fatal blow will be delivered in his death and resurrection. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So the fatal blow begins with his death and resurrection. The final part of the fatal blow occurs in the future when he casts Satan into the lake of fire. Revelation 20.10, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now the final act of divine justice was the bruising of the heel of the woman's seed. Now, that may not appear to you as a curse, but indeed it is. You see, contrary to the Messiah crushing the head, which is fatal, the serpent, Satan, his seed, is going to bruise the heel. Now, you bruise someone's heel and it hurts, but it's painful, but it's not terminal. This curse is the curse of death. Jesus will die. Of course, his death isn't permanent, as we know. Ironically, Satan's seeming victory, albeit temporary, at the cross was the means of his ultimate and permanent defeat. Because it's through Jesus' death that he ultimately defeats Satan. Now, you ask, Pastor, why is the virgin birth so important? Is it a big deal? Does it really matter? Can you be a believer and not believe the virgin birth? I'll say this. You can become saved without believing the virgin birth. What do you need to be saved? Well, you need to know you're a sinner. God's righteous and sent his son. His son died, shed his blood, rose again to pay for your sin. So that you, why? Could be free from the curse of sin, which is the lake of fire. That, in a nutshell, is the basics of what a person needs to know to be saved. That's why even a child can grasp that truth. Now, when we come to the virgin birth, though, that's something that's fundamental to the faith, that when a person is saved, should be one of the first things they're taught. And every true child of God will come to the place of a believing, trusting in the virgin birth of Christ. Anybody who is saved or claims to be a believer and denies the virgin birth is denied the faith. That's apostasy, folks. A genuine believer cannot deny the virgin birth. Listen, a genuine believer may not understand the virgin birth. They may need to be taught the virgin birth. But if they genuinely have the Holy Spirit within them, guess what? They're going to come to a place where they understand and believe the virgin birth. So anybody denies the virgin birth is like denying that Jesus is God. Okay, it's the same thing. You, you know, he's, if he's not God, if he's not man, he's not the Savior, he's not the Lord, and you're dead in your sin. So why is the virgin birth important though? Why is it essential? Because it's the key that protects the deity of Christ. Remember, he is God, eternal God in human flesh. Humanity has a sin nature though. And so when Christ came into the world, he came through a woman, he came as a human, he's 100% God, but also 100% humanity, but without a sin nature. If Christ had a sin nature, he couldn't be our savior, because he'd need a savior. So what protects him from having a sin nature? The virgin birth. Let me explain. 
Romans 5.12 Just as through one man sinners enters the world and death through sin, so death spreads to all men because all have sinned. So theologically we understand what's called seminal and federal headship. Federal headship says Adam sinned on behalf of all of us, like a government official, okay? And seminal headship means that Adam passes his sin nature down to all of his descendants, both men and women. Seminal headship also then presents the fact that a woman, though she is a sinner, though you all ladies have a sin nature, you cannot pass on your sin nature to your child. So the next time your child sins, you can be sure it's their father's fault. Because sin passes through the husband. It passes through the man. Okay? You know, you, you, I'm sure you've all heard it. You, you know, they're your kids. Okay? You're right. Okay? When they sin, they're sinning just like their dad. Well, Jesus did not have a human father. So, even though being born of a woman, he's completely human... He doesn't possess a sin nature. Well, wait a minute, Pastor. How can he be completely human and not have a sin nature? Isn't that what makes you human? No. Let me ask you this. Did Adam and Eve have a sin nature when they were created? No. They had human nature. They didn't possess a sin nature until when? Until they sinned. Then they possessed a sin nature. If he had a human father, he would have possessed a sin nature. If Jesus had a sin nature, he couldn't be the spotless sacrifice to appease God's wrath against sin. Now, maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, I don't believe the virgin birth. You're scoffing at that idea. Well, I'll pray for you. I'll pray that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes to see these truths and believe them. Because these are eternal truths. But you know, there's a lot of scoffing of the virgin birth. There's a book written called The Bible Doesn't Say That. Now, I'm not, I'm not giving you this title so you can run out and buy this book because it's utter garbage. Don't waste your money. I wasted mine. Forty biblical mistranslations. Forty of them. Misconceptions and other misunderstandings. Here's what the author says on the virgin birth. He says, Many English translations, misunderstanding the way Old Testament passages are quoted in the New Testament, insist on rendering the Hebrew of Isaiah 7.14 as virgin, even though it's clear that the original word there means young woman. Frequently, the author says, the motivation behind this purposeful mistranslation is to bolster the account in Matthew to reinforce Jesus' virgin birth. Let me recap. We ought to render the Hebrew term for virgin as young woman. And the reason is, they believe that the idea of a virgin birth is too incredible for the sophisticated modern person. We even have some versions of scripture that translate Isaiah 7.14 as a young woman with child. Now, historically Isaiah 7.14 has always been translated as a virgin with child. I want you to think of the word, the Hebrew word there is hama little apostrophe with the H sound, A-L-M-A. Now that term, Hama, denotes a marriageable girl or young woman until the birth of her first child. Okay, let's think about this. A young woman until the birth of her first child. Well, if she's a young woman who hasn't had a child, then the idea would be what? She's a virgin. Seven times this word is used in the Hebrew Scriptures. And in each of those seven references, the term Halma always denotes a young woman who was what? A virgin. Now, if six of the seven references all refer to the woman as a virgin, why would Isaiah use it any differently? So when Isaiah renders it a virgin, should it be a virgin? Yes. The translators of the Septuagint understood it should be a virgin. So that when they translated the Hebrew word into Greek, they chose the Greek term parthenos, which strictly refers to what? A woman who has no sexual relations with a man, i.e. a virgin. Interestingly enough, when Matthew quotes Isaiah 7.14, in Matthew 1.23, what Greek term does he use? Parthenos, virgin. 
Mary's virginity is emphasized in Matthew and Luke's genealogies. We have in both accounts the fact that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus and remained a virgin until after she birthed Jesus. We'll get more into this when we look at the prophets because I want to come back to Isaiah 7.14 and explore it further. But understand that what we see here in Genesis 3.15 is that Jesus came into this world not of a human father, not with a human father, but with a human mother. He came, he was born of the seed of a woman. Let's move on to Genesis 17. The seed of Abraham. Genesis 17. We see the next prophecy here. He says, I will establish, verses 7 and 8 of Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Now, that's what we call the Abrahamic covenant. Back in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, God called Abraham. He said, go forth from your country, go to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. You're going to be a blessing. I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and all the families of the world are going to be blessed by you. So there in Genesis 12, there were two commands and several promises. Go to the land, and I will make you a great nation, bless you, and give you a great name. Then I want you to be a blessing. And as you're a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those who curse you, and all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now the promised blessing here to Abraham is going to come through the messianic seed promised to Eve. The seed of the woman is going to descend through Abraham's lineage. And this promise here, it becomes the foundation of that Abrahamic covenant. God is going to give to Abraham a land where his name will become great, his descendants will become a great nation, and he's going to be a great blessing to the whole world. Later in Genesis 15, verses 17 and 18, Yahweh renews the covenant and says, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldee to give this land to you to possess and on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. Then, in chapter 17, which we read, God reestablishes that covenant. He promised what? To establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants. For an everlasting covenant. I will give to you and your descendants after you all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. Now I want to focus on that word descendants there in Genesis 17. It, guess what word it is? Zerah. You say, Pastor, that word's familiar. Where did we just see Zerah? The seed of the woman. So the word seed is again used here, translated as descendants. Now even though it's translated as a plural, in the Hebrew, guess what? It's a singular masculine noun. And just as Strong's told us, it can refer to a group of descendants or it can refer to one particular descendant. And certainly we can see both sides to that, that yes, it's going to be many descendants came from Abraham who possessed the land. But I want you to see how Paul, in, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, interpreted Genesis 17 verses 7 and 8. In Galatians 3.16, he said, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to the one, and to your seed, that is Christ. Paul understood, Genesis 17, 7 and 8, that the word descendant, seed there, should not be plural, but singular, and being singular, it points to, to none other than the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He is the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. He is the promised son who will be the redeemer of humanity. And indeed, as he promised, all the families of the earth will be blessed by the seed of Abraham. 
by the descendant of Abraham. Matthew 1.1 begins stating the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. By referring to Jesus as the son of Abraham, Matthew establishes that the Messiah is indeed the promised seed of the Abrahamic covenant. And the remainder of that chronological record goes on to prove that Jesus is indeed the seed of Abraham. Let's move forward to Genesis 49 and verse 10. Genesis 49 and verse 10. The third messianic prophecy found in the law is the prophecy of the scepter of Judah. The scepter of Judah. Genesis 49 and verse 10. Jacob says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, contextually, Genesis 49, Jacob is on his deathbed and calls his children to his side. He says in Genesis 49:1, Assemble yourselves together, that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. Now, that phrase, days to come, Akaret Hayamim is an interesting phrase only used 12 times, 12 other times, 13 in total, in the Hebrew Scriptures. And the other 12 times the phrase is used, you're going to love this folks, pay attention. The other 12 times it refers to the Messianic age or what we would call the days of the Messiah. So if 13 times the word is used... Twelve of those refers to the days of the Messiah. What was Judah talking about? Or what was Jacob talking about here? He's talking about what? This is what's going to happen to you in the days of the Messiah. He's giving them a deathbed blessing, but it's a prophecy. And so, when we come to verse 9 of Genesis 49, he talks to Judah. He says, Judah, you're a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. You couch, you lie down as a lion, as a lion who dares rouse you up. Judah, you're a lion. You're a powerful tribe. You're going to rule the other tribes. That's why you're a lion. You're noble. You're full of vigor. You're going to consume your enemies. But then in verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. The symbol of royalty belongs to Judah. He has the right to rule. And it shall not depart. The right to rule will always belong to the Judean tribe. Then he adds, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. The ruler's staff symbolizes the law. It emphasizes that a lawgiver will come forth from the tribe of Judah. And if you're not sure who the lawgiver is, Isaiah 33.22 declares, The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. And this Lord is none other than Jesus, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And if you say, well, how do you know that, Pastor? Go over to James chapter 4 and verse 10, where James says, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord Jesus, because He is the lawgiver and the judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. He's telling us right here that the Messiah is coming through the tribe of Judah. He's coming through a woman, a virgin, who's a descendant of Abraham, who's a descendant of Judah. He continues, now here's where it gets tricky. Until Shiloh comes. What? Who in the world or what in the world is Shiloh? Some have interpreted Shiloh to be a proper noun. It must be a Jewish city. Because in Joshua 18.1 it says, The whole congregation of the sons of Israel assembled themselves at Shiloh. Here's the problem though. Well, one problem. Shiloh in Genesis 49.10 is to Judah. The Shiloh in Joshua 18.1 is in Ephraim. So I don't think it's that city. There's a second problem. In Hebrew, we have two different words. They're both translated here as Shiloh, but it's not the same word. The word here in Genesis 49.10 is Shwa Yod Lamet Hey, and the word translated as Shiloh in Joshua 18.1 is Shwa Lamet Vav. It's two different words. Furthermore, we have a 
problem here in Genesis 49.10 of agreement between the noun and the verb. If the word Shiloh here was shwa lamet vav, as in Joshua 18, that would make it a feminine noun, but the verb here is masculine. You can't have a feminine noun and a masculine verb. You see, the term Shiloh in Genesis 49.10, Shwav Yod Lama He, is not a feminine noun, but instead it is a possessive masculine pronoun, which you can render he whose it is, or that which belongs to him. The Septuagint translators rendered it this way, until, the, until Shiloh comes, they said it this way, until there comes the things stored up for him. Now, it's still a little difficult to understand. So there's a text in Ezekiel 21 that's almost parallel. Let me read Ezekiel 21, verse 26 and 27. And you'll hear the parallel. Take off the crown. This also will be no more until he comes whose right it is. And I'll give it to him. Now, a crown is a symbol of kingship, just like a scepter and a rolling staff. And Ezekiel prophesies there's going to be no king in Israel. There's going to be no crown, no king any longer in Israel until he comes who has the right to be king to reign. When he comes, then God will give him the crown and the right to reign as king. And so here in Genesis 49.10, until he comes whose right it is to be king. Now the word until, let's understand until. It doesn't mean a termination. It means culmination. In other words, he says to Judah, ruling authority will successively be passed down through the generations until one particular Judean comes whose right it is to rule forever. And that one is none other than Jesus the Messiah. Matthew 1, 1 1-16 records the genealogy of Jesus. Verse 2 states, Abraham was the father of of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of who? Judah. From verse 3 to 6, the genealogy goes from Judah down to David the king. And then from David the king, it continues down to verse 16 with Joseph, the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Indeed, Jesus is the scepter of Judah. One final text, and that's in Numbers 24, 17. The star of Jacob. There's perhaps outside of the stable and the manger and the shepherds, there's perhaps no other more significant a symbol of Christmas than the Christmas star. And that star is foretold in Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. Now, here in Numbers 24, this prophecy is made by a guy named Balaam, who was a soothsayer or a magi from Babylon. The king of Moab hires this cat to curse Israel. He can't do it. Yahweh warns him, don't do it. And, of course, you'll remember that he's going to go do it because Balaam's going to, or the king of Moab's going to pay him. And so God sends an angel of death. Uh, the donkey sees the angel. Balaam doesn't. Balaam beats the donkey. The donkey turns around with more intelligence and talks to Balaam and says, What's your problem, man? Can't you see that angel of death? Now, that's the Capellian translation of Numbers uh, 22. But you get the point. Yahweh opened Balaam's eyes took the scales off and said, listen, you can go, but anything that comes out of your mouth will be nothing but blessing. And one of those blessings is recorded right here. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not yet, not near. Implying that the one he is seeing is not present, but future. He will be a scepter. That's the king. Goes right back to Genesis 49 verse 10. It looks forward to Jesus. He sees the Messiah. But what he sees the Messiah, a star will come forth from Jacob or Israel. Flash forward to Matthew chapter 2. Those magi, of which 
Balaam was a forerunner. Come in Matthew 2, verse 2 to 3, to Jerusalem. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from where? The east. Arrive in Jerusalem. And what's their question? Where is he? Born king of the Jews. Why? Why the question? For we have saw his star in the east and we've come to worship him. How do they know about the star? They knew about Balaam. They knew Balaam's prophecies. Remember, these guys are descendants from Balaam. These are people that study the stars. They were searching the night skies for signs. But also notice their question here. His star. Not just any star. They knew that the star belonged to the Messiah. Because in their understanding, when a divine announcement of a significant person's birth was made, it was always accompanied by a star. The star directed them to the place of his birth. But they also understood that this was the birth of a king. Of a human king. He who is born king of the Jews. Now the star they followed was unique. It was unique in its appearance. He said, we saw it in the east. Okay. In other words, they were in the east. That's where they were when they saw the star. Where did they see it? In the west over Israel. Now, we're not astronomers, I understand that. But basic science tells us stars rise in the east not the West. The fact they saw this star appear in the West tells us there is something different about this star. It's unique. Its movement is unique. Matthew goes on to say, the star they saw in the East went before them. Now, they were in Jerusalem when they saw it. It appears in Jerusalem, then reappears over Bethlehem. Now again, here's basic geography. Jerusalem is north Bethlehem is south. Stars move east to west, not north to south. So it's not only unique in its appearance, it's unique in its movement. Well, what is that star? Or who is that star? The word star here can refer to a celestial body, but it also refers to a supernatural light that leads to a special place. In the Exodus, the Israelites followed a light. They followed the Shekinah glory, a cloud filled with fire. It was during the captivity of Babylon that the Shekinah departed. Ezekiel said in chapter 9 and verse 3, the glory of God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been. The glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city, stood over the mountain which is east of the city. Which is talking about it moved from the Temple Mount to the Mount of Olives. And then it disappeared. But later, Ezekiel was given a beautiful prophecy from God. He led me to the gate, the gate facing towards the east. And behold, the glory of Israel, the God of Israel, was coming from the way of the east. The Shekinah glory was going to come back by way of the east. It is a light that moves and points to the presence of God. And that star of, of, of Matthew 2, that star that Balaam foresaw announcing the king's birth that would come from Jacob is not an astronomical object. It's not a meteor. It's not a, a, a Mars and Jupiter or whatever, two planets aligning. It is the appearance of the Shekinah glory in the form of light pointing to the Shekinah glory embodied in human flesh, Jesus the Messiah. You know, i got to admit, Christmas sermons from the Old Testament are a bit unusual. We typically are in the Gospels. But what occurs in the Gospels, folks, I hope you've seen this morning was first prophesied here in the Hebrew Scriptures. And as such, it's imperative to study these prophecies. The first portion of the Hebrew Scriptures, the law, reveals four specific prophecies. The seed of the woman foretells that Jesus would be born of a virgin. The seed of Abraham foretells that he would be born as the promised son who came to redeem us. The third prophecy, the scepter of Judah, tells us he'll be born as king and lawgiver. Is he your king? Are you obeying him as your lawgiver? 
He's the star of Jacob. He is born as king. He is the embodiment of the Shekinah glory of God in human flesh. John 4.22 says, Salvation is from the Jews. In other words, the blessing of redemption, which is for the whole world, originated with the Jews. All the promises of our Savior's birth, as well as His death and resurrection, were given to the Jewish people. But I praise the Lord. Because when He promised to Abraham that the seed would come through Him, He promised that that Jewish seed wouldn't be just a blessing to Israel, but it'd be a blessing to the whole world. Indeed, that blessing is Jesus as revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures, as revealed in the law. And praise God, He is our Lord and Savior. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, God Almighty, Lord, we come into Your presence. We come through Jesus, the one born of a virgin, the seed of Abraham, the scepter of Judah, the star of Jacob. Oh, Father, I thank You for Him. I thank You, Lord, that He is our King, that He's our lawgiver, that, Lord, He has taken ownership of us because He came and redeemed us, the sinless one. And, Father, He is today the glorious one. Father, I ask and pray that, Lord, we might live our lives with meaning, that we would live our lives with the meaning of who Jesus is. That God in the flesh, the sinless one, redeemed us, rescued us from the lake of fire, and now has adopted us into your family, and is now glorified in your presence, making intercession for us. Forgive us, Father. Forgive us for getting so distracted with all the other things, nice things, wonderful things, great things, but things that ought to pale in comparison when we look at that babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. So forgive us, Father. I pray that as we've come to your scriptures, that you've given us a renewed focus on who Jesus is and on why he came. Father, may you receive the glory today and forever. Amen.